It was around a month ago, the 19th of March, on a Sunday afternoon. Some people say that's exactly over the weekends when the markets are closed that the best deals are completed. It was on that Sunday that UBS surprised the whole financial world and announced it was about to buy Credit Suisse after the shares and the subordinated bonds of the latter had been tumbling for at least a week. Credit Suisse was coming from some very rocky years characterized by significant financial losses from its investment banking arm and corporate scandals, including fraud. But in a market that was already shocked by the collapse of two US regional banks, the last nail in the coffin was Credit Suisse itself casting doubts over its own accounting practices. And one of its major shareholders ruling out any extra support for the Swiss bank. So things were turning really bad and UBS stepped in. But how? As part of the merger with UBS, FINMA, which is the Swiss regulator, decided to write down 16 billion Swiss francs of Credit Suisse additional tier one bonds without fully wiping out the shares of the bank, which were transferred to UBS for a total consideration of 3 billion Swiss francs. So hold on a second here. The regulator basically imposed a massive haircut on some creditors of Credit Suisse, those holding the deeply subordinated 81 notes, but did not wipe out the shareholders of the bank. And the question we are asking today is, how was that possible? And are 81 notes as an asset class still investable after what happened? Hello everyone and welcome. My name is Luca Rossi and I'm the head of distressed debt coverage at Reorg Europe. Joining me today is uh, Francesco Castelli, who is the head of credit strategy at Banner. Francesco is a specialist in financial bonds and capital securities. Let's start from the last point I mentioned, Francesco. How was this type of deal, so 81 holders of Credit Suisse wiped out while shareholders partially reimbursed, possible, in your opinion? And do you think that this narrative of a rescue of shareholders, mainly for political reasons, at the expense of some bondholders, holds some truth? Well, it certainly might look strange, odd, but it's not totally unreasonable. I think it's unfair to be, to be quite, uh, quite honest. And this uh, political decision will have uh, uh, long consequences for, uh, for the financial sector in Switzerland. However, from a certain point of view, I think it's also legal. Uh, the hierarchy can be uh, changed uh, during a, a point of non-viability event. That was disclosed in the prospectus. It's uh, included in the Swiss uh, banking regulation, of course. We can discuss if this regulation is fair or not, but it's part of the regulation. and was uh, disclosed very candidly by Credit Suisse itself uh, in a fixed income presentation it was published on the 14th of March. Of course, this presentation is no longer available on the website, <laughs> but mysteriously 
Of course, of course. And it's very interesting because it discusses the uh, these circumstances in which uh, the the uh, uh, you know at the time I was I was uh, questioning the the management decision to publish such a detailed disclosure at such a nervous moment. But uh, with hindsight, we know that the, the credit regulator prob probably already on Thursday, when the liquidity uh, credit line was, uh, uh, was given to, to Credit Suisse, they would probably have already taken the decision that Credit Suisse uh, was uh, to, be, uh, to be bought by, by, by someone else. And so I think we, we have to consider that this, the decision was very political, yes. I don't think it was political in the sense that the credit uh, regulator, the, 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 the regulator had in mind one class of creditors uh, or the other. They had in mind the financial stability for the uh, Swiss uh, financial system. And we know that uh, in Switzerland uh, the financial uh, sector is one of the key uh, drivers of the economy. So of course it was a very political decision. Uh, they knew that uh, uh, a uh, resolution of Credit Suisse would have resulted in a, a vast uh, financial turmoil. They absolutely wanted to avoid it. And so with this specific aim in mind, no resolution of Credit Suisse. They took any possible legal avenue to avoid a resolution. Uh, the legal avenue uh, available was having the shareholders agreeing to, to a distressed transaction, a distressed, a distressed uh, M&A with, uh, with uh, uh, UBS. UBS was the only uh, possible uh, buyer uh, for Credit Suisse as a whole. Uh, so of course we could have alternative plans of Credit Suisse distributing, uh, distributing different uh, uh, activities around the world, but there was not a solution available by the end of the weekend and urgency with capital flights and deposit flights was, uh, was certainly a great consideration, a very important consideration for the Swiss regulator. So the legal avenue was identified. We have uh, to have a UBS buying uh, Credit Suisse. Uh, UBS has done this exercise probably for months. We know that years ago they considered this, so for sure that uh, they were being told in advance, please refresh your numbers, we might be calling you very soon. And so they, they had everything ready. Of course, you, uh, there, there was the need of having a, a non-zero uh, value for the bank because uh, uh, the board of directors had to agree to sell the bank for a, 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 a number that was not considered just a, a, a non-zero number. It was... Uh, uh, exactly, exactly. So if you want the board to, to sign, you cannot uh, have the board signing for, uh, for uh, one Swiss franc. It, it, it should have been a few billion. And of course it was a, a transaction imposed by the regulator, probably uh, mentioning the fact that the alternative was uh, the, the solution of the bank. So for the board of directors this was, uh, was enough to justify their signature. Of course the government had to change the regulation because they, 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 the government decided that the, the signature of, of the board of directors was enough to, to accept the transaction so they didn't require any, any shareholders which of course is a change in regulation. Of course, in the, in the process, they decided to, to, to throw the 8100s uh, under the bus because <laughs> that's the sad reality. And this will result in a large transfer of value from uh, Credit Suisse bondholders to UBS shareholders. That's the part that probably is not fair. 
Is it legal? Unfortunately, as we mentioned before, we think it is. Um, also, let's not forget that shareholders are not getting like a very sweet deal at the end of the day because uh, the, the, the shares were transferred for 3 billion Swiss francs while the, capi- the market capitalization of Credit Suisse at the end of 2021 was 25 billion Swiss francs. So it was a, was a, was a bloodbath for shareholders too. Yeah, we, 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 we saw that some uh, very high-profile shareholders were forced uh, to, to, to resign from their position. So it's, it's a situation where you cannot say where uh, uh, they, they, equity holders, they didn't walk happily uh, away uh, from, from the deal with, with a lot of money in their pockets. It was just enough to justify this uh, solution, which uh, preserve financial stability, is not a political solution that uh, offers a, a great value to, to shareholders. It's a political solution uh, aimed at financial stability in Switzerland. And that was the only uh, big result that the, the, the Swiss regulators was trying to achieve. Makes perfect sense. Thanks, Francesco. Um, we know that after the, the deal, after the merger, um, the markets were kind of all over the place. Uh, a lot of 81s dropped up to 40, 50 points, uh, especially in Europe. Then the Bank of England and the European Central Bank intervened, intervened saying that basically, they basically criticized, implicitly criticized was, was what FITMA, uh, what the Swiss regulator did, saying that shareholders are always first to bear losses in Europe and, and in the UK. Things calmed down a little bit, but the million dollar question that everyone is kind of asking is, Will there be another Credit Suisse? And who is the most vulnerable bank if things turn sour again? Well, of course, from a regulatory standpoint, we don't see any, uh, any we don't draw any parallel uh, between the, uh, the Swiss uh, regulatory context and the European regulatory context. With a single exception uh, in a Santander subsidiary, there are no bonds with a permanent uh, write-down in Europe, so bonds that are structured uh, like, like uh, the Credit Suisse bonds were. And the, the, there is no uh, uh, application uh, in, uh, in the European context of, of the FIMA uh, liquidation process. So it's a completely different uh, regulatory context and Bank of England and ECB reminded everyone that this is the case. From a fundamental perspective, uh, uh, it's very difficult to see how Deutsche Bank, to be very, very, very open on, on the names, how Deutsche Bank can, 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 can have the same problem of Credit Suisse. Credit Suisse was a bank with a decade-long history of uh, inability to achieve a turnaround, a proper turnaround of this business. Uh, they managed a capital increase without offering a credible restructuring plan to the market. Deutsche Bank is a profitable bank, maybe not as profitable and, and some, as some shareholder would like, but is profitable, has successfully restructured this business. Uh, and uh, so the, and the, the funding structure of uh, Deutsche Bank is completely different. It's much more granular, much more exposed to retail banking, which is thick here. So we don't see the same problems uh, 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 Deutsche Bank as for Credit Suisse. Uh, from a, a, a broader perspective, however, we are clearly seeing uh, a banking crisis uh, developing uh, in, uh, in the regional banks in the UK, so in the smaller uh, banks in the US, sorry. And, uh, and we see the possibility, so the risks we are monitoring in Europe is uh, 
for similar banks, so smaller banks, where uh, deposits may possibly be more volatile. At the moment, we are not seeing the signs yet, but certainly we are seeing uh, an increase in the competition for the, in the deposit market. And uh, we see that larger banks are very aggressive in trying to, uh, to, to expand their depositor base. This combined with the uh, notion that the ECB sooner or later will uh, discontinue the TITRO, so the, the liquidity provision to the market, makes uh, smaller banks, in our view, more vulnerable. And that's the area we're going to monitor. On a, a more positive note, uh, let's be honest, the middle-sized bank in Europe is much stronger than the uh, regional banks in the US because the ECB and the Bank of England has been much, much stricter in applying the rules. We know that for a number of years, uh, regional banks in the US have uh, had very limited uh, regulatory oversight, and, uh, but we don't see the same uh, imbalance and duration mismatch that, uh, that we saw in the US. So in our view, from a fundamental point of view, we see the risks emerging, uh, the economy will slow down, the credit cycle is over, so that, that's an area of focus in our research. Uh, will we see the same problems we've seen in the US? We don't think it's going to be the same in Europe. We're going to have problems, but it's more, I think, a, a, a problem area for uh, shareholders that will not see maybe the, the returns that they, they, they were expecting at the beginning of the year. We don't think it's going to be a, a, a giant credit crisis as we can see in the United States. And when you talk about regional banks also in Europe, you have any country in, uh, in mind? Uh, like, uh, I don't know, we've seen you know, quite a lot of issues in the past with uh, Italian smaller sized banks or even Spanish ones, or it's more of a broader view that you take on, on that type of smaller lenders? Um, I don't think we're going to have a specific problem in Italy, for instance. Uh, the, the, the competition for deposits in Italy at the moment is relatively, is relatively limited, uh, with the largest uh, bank in Italy having declared that they don't intend to fight this, this, this war. And so it's kind of giving uh, more uh, oxygen, more breathing room to, to small banks. But of course, that, as I said, it's more a risk we're monitoring than not, uh, not something we can see. While in the US you can clearly see a deterioration and uh, we, we, we are seeing the reporting, uh, even at larger banks in the US, there's a clear uh, switch out of deposits into money market funds. Of course, it's not a problem for JP Morgan, it's not a problem for large banks, but it's going to be a, a larger problem for, uh, for smaller banks. Um, in Europe, for the moment, uh, is just uh, a risk factor that we are monitoring, but not something we are seeing uh, we are seeing uh, in, uh, in in reality. Of course, as a as a general uh, approach, especially in tier ones, so you see double digit uh, returns for larger, more uh, more sounds, uh, more sound balance sheets at larger banks. You don't spend too much time going for, for the same double digit returns in, in smaller banks. You, you, you stick with the, with the easy trade, which is, I do trust this, I think these instruments are uh, instruments that will be protected by the ECB. I see double digit returns, I stick to larger players, more, more solid players, and that's going to be enough for the asset class. Got it. And Still talking about the asset class, actually moving away from Credit Suisse, the additional tier one notes. A lot of people after 
the whole Credit Suisse story, rushed to say that the asset class is dead. Uh, I mean, do you do you envisage any you know specific problem for the asset class in the future and for the cost of funding of banks after what happened? Or you think, especially after the intervention of the ECB and the Bank of England, things are going to settle a bit? Let's remember that Credit Suisse 81s were regulated and the documentation have some features, which is different, as you said, from many other 81s in Europe. Yeah, I think the asset class at the moment is uh, in a uh, difficult position. It's, uh, it's difficult for, uh, for issuers uh, to come to the market. I think the clarification we got from the ECB and the Bank of England is very important because it's going to reopen the market for at least for larger players in 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 the rest of Europe. It remains a problem for Switzerland because under the current regulation, I doubt anyone will be happy to put money into Swiss 81s. So, but, but we see the problem as limited to Switzerland and we might see some, some change in regulation. Uh, however, I think also, so the, the ECB also um, at the end of last year, so it, it's not something that they, they decided after crisis, the ECB has become uh, more and more supportive of the asset class. There have been issuers that weren't able to call the bonds at the end of 2022 and have been able to call the bonds at the beginning of 2023, for instance, Sabadell. And it's clear that the, the ECB is kind of uh, making uh, a call easier uh, to achieve, even if you don't refinance the bond exactly at the same spread or below the, the, the spread of the bonds you, are, uh, you decide to call. And so, uh, and uh, let, let's re- remind everyone that during COVID, uh, the ECB decided to stop all the dividends, but insisted on the banks uh, because they, they, they were all allowed to pay coupon on 81s. We think the ECB and the Bank of England consider this as a class as key uh, for uh, the support of the sector. It's around 300 billion, which is more or less uh, a fifth of the capital base of European banks, and so it's a very sizable chunk of capital, and it's very it's it, it's very supportive. The ECB considers it very very supportive. So I think they're going to do whatever they can to support the asset class. Of course, from a regulatory perspective, let's be honest. There's an ample area of uh, uh, discretionary in 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 this uh, in this asset class. Is discretionary for the issuer. To pay the coupons is discretional, as we saw for for the central bank to or for the regulator to decide a bail-in of of of, uh, of these bonds, and and I think a, a, an asset class where you buy perpetual bonds with discretionary coupons is potentially an asset class where you have perpetual bonds uh, with uh, with uh, with zero recovery, which. Uh, of course, it's not the the, the soundest <laughs> the, the, the the soundest proposition for uh, for fundamental investors. And to be honest, as a fundamental investor, I know about those risks, and I it, it makes my job a bit more difficult, right? I think that, that there are a few tweaks that the the, the regulators may uh, decide to to examine, uh, reducing this discretionality, especially. In the case, uh, in the case of uh, payments uh, from um, uh, 
from the issuers. So if you decide, for instance, if you insist on uh, some connection between uh, coupons of 81s and dividends, that would be a, 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 welcome, uh, a welcome improvement. Of course, the, the, the European regulation, CRD4, decided to cut all the links between the two, and, and the regulator insisted that uh, the, the uh, the legislation insisted a lot on this point. I think it's a point that it's open for discussion uh, at this stage. It wouldn't change much the value of this capital uh, to impose uh, some link between uh, equity dividends and uh, 81 coupons. But uh, So we maintain all the, the, the loss of sovereign capacity of these bonds, giving some additional rights and some additional certainty to 81 holders. And then, of course, uh, making the, uh, this, uh, uh, this also the, the transparency in the process a, a bit clearer is another area that, that will certainly help uh, investors. Um, but uh, in the end, I think the, the consideration of uh, European regulators is very supporting, and it's the reason why we keep on buying the securities, actually, we increased. Uh, the exposure to these securities. Uh, the, the ECB and the Bank of England has made very clear that they're going to act uh, as much as possible to support these securities. And so, whereas these uh, cash flows are, uh, to a large extent, discretionary, we think that these cash flows will be supported by the regulator. Let, let me stop you here a second. So you said that you increased your position in, in the asset class, generally speaking, when basically the notes went down after the Credit Suisse uh, uh, story. Yeah. The, We've been, uh, uh, we've been uh, somewhat uh, lucky, let's say, we decided in the first part of the year to, to reduce exposure to certain areas of uh, um, financial credit. Um, it, 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 it was more of a uh, view uh, challenging uh, the notion, you know, the, the first two months the uh, equity sector, uh, banking sector was uh, buoyant. We thought the numbers uh, uh, that the market had in mind were a bit too optimistic, and so we decided to reduce exposure both in equities and uh, and in financials, uh, uh, financial credit. And uh, and uh, it turned out to be pro we, we weren't forecasting uh, the Swiss uh, default. We weren't forecasting uh, three regional banks in the U.S. going bust for sure. But we took this opportunity to 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 re-enter the market. We think both in equities and uh, in, uh, in 81s, uh, uh, there has been a, a large repricing. And, and by the way, this repricing is, already, is uh, still very large because the recovery has been, uh, has been very limited. And to be honest, we are not uh, uh, betting on a prompt recovery. Historically, when you see the, the whole sector, more than 90% of the sector currently is trading uh, to an extension. So the market believes that these bonds will not be called, uh, not, not anytime soon. Uh, but we see this as a, as a medium-term opportunity uh, because you have, uh, uh, on the asset class, you have double-digit yields. And uh, historically, uh, when you see these double-digit yields, is a good uh, moment uh, to enter the asset class, especially because we don't see a 2011 or a 2008 uh, crisis on the horizon, of course. As discussed, we see some fragilities in smaller banks, but the, 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 the beauty of this trade is that you can get double-digit yields without investing in smaller, more fragile institutions, and that's, that's the main supporting view we have in, in this sector.
Um, but talking about this um, uh, and about what you mentioned earlier about the call of these bonds, at the time of this recording, um, Unicredit is still waiting for the ECB approval to uh, call one of its uh, 81 bonds. It's uh, uh, 1.25 billion euros. Um, the, the interesting uh, side of this story is that uh, Unicredit is not planning to issue a new 81 instrument uh, to replenish its additional tier one capital. So this is quite unprecedented because usually uh, the central bank allowed uh, these notes to be, to be called, to be repaid, but demanded for uh, a new issuance uh, to, to, be, to be made. Uh, what do you think about this? Do you think the ECB will give the green light to Unicredit? And do you think this is a pattern which we will see in banks with the more robust uh, capital ratios? So repaying uh, and calling their uh, perpetual 81s without issuing new, um, new notes? Well, this is an interesting trade and it's one of the types of the bonds we like at this point. Because you have a very interesting uh, yield to call. But if the bond is not called, you also have a very interesting uh, yield to perpetuity. So assuming these bonds will no longer be called, but coupons will continue to be paid, we're going to get a very decent return, maybe even better than the equity return from this kind of, uh, uh, from the equity cash flows, let's say, from, from these bonds. So that's the kind of trade we are trying to select at this juncture. Uh, in, in fairness, uh, the Unicredit position is a bit different from the rest of the sector, it's much better than the rest of the sector. So uh, they have uh, a lot of excess capital in, uh, CT1, uh, uh, in the CT1 bucket and actually they've been allowed uh, to conduct a very generous buyback uh, with their shareholders. They equally have uh, some excess capital at uh, uh, tier 1 level. We know that uh, banks uh, have uh, an 81 bucket of one and a half points that is uh, uh, given by, by regulation. And actually, Unicredit is, has excess capital on this. And even recalling this 1.25 billion without issuing any new capital, they will continue to have a one and a half percent bucket. So on one hand, uh, Unicredit position is a bit unique. Uh, it, it, the rest of the sector is, uh, in general, hasn't got that, that, that much capital to, to, to return to shareholders and bondholders. Uh, on the other side, I think this is the kind of event that will, over time, uh, allow the market to recover. Generally, when a market uh, with a call risk uh, uh, moves and price to extension, we've seen uh, last year with uh, hybrid bonds, hybrid industrial bonds, uh, we are now seeing this with, uh, with 81s, you need a number of events, uh, no, not a single event, Unicredit is going to help, but it's a single event, you will need a number of issuers uh, uh, moving, uh, entering the market, issuing a new bond, maybe relatively expensive, and then being allowed to, to, to call uh, 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 the existing bonds. Then when you start to see this process taking place two, three, four times, the market will start uh, to, recover, uh, to recover faster. Uh, but of course, if this is the case and the ECB decides to make an exception for the exceptionally strong position of Unicredit, we would see it as a first trigger uh, to move to a more, to set a more bullish tone 
in the market. It's not going to be enough, but it's going to be the first, uh, the first sign. And maybe the ECBs may decide that uh, to support the asset class, they will make this exception. But of course, we, we're not going to know. They, <laughs> they, 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 will, they will wait, as usual, the, the, the last possible day before uh, the notice period, because that, that's their, their standard approach. Uh, last question, Francesco. Um, there are a lot of 81s, um, uh, Credit Suisse 81s, uh, disgruntled investors who are um, considering the possibility and they're actually preparing for a litigation against uh, all the parties involved in the UBS Credit Suisse uh, merger. Uh, do, do you think they, they stand any chance of, of you know, recovering any of their investments? Well, I'm, I'm not a legal expert. I understand that there are outstanding 16 billion of these securities. So, of course, just for fiduciary duty, I think it's, uh, it's uh, the, the, the decision to, to go for litigation is the, is the most sensible for, for many holders of these bonds. Uh, however, as discussed, uh, Credit Suisse was very clear in its communication to the market to, to highlight the risks. On an ex-post basis, as we all understand, this was not just a, 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 a candid disclosure for Credit Suisse, probably it was supported by the central bank. And, and I, I remember back in November when they presented the, the capital increase, the management started to mention the bailinable securities, the total loss absorbing capacity. And I was kind of surprised to, 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 to hear the management speaking so candidly about a scenario which would involve some form of resolution, right? But on an ex-post basis, I understand the, the, the Swiss regulators have been mulling this scenario for a long time, for a long time. And uh, to be honest, I think they have a very strong uh, legal ground that they, they certainly uh, are, are went uh, over the plan uh, at length with their uh, legal expert. The, the situation at Credit Suisse was so messy in terms of liquidity uh, flowing out that they are very likely to, to have been breaching uh, LCR, so liquidity ratios, so maybe on multiple, on multiple jurisdictions. So the ability for the Swiss regulators to show that actually they were already past the point of no viability, I think it's going to be a very simple exercise and this will complicate a lot the, the, uh, the, the job for, uh, for, for the litigators. And uh, of course with, uh, with uh, such a, uh, an amount of transparency on the end of uh, Credit Suisse before, uh, before the, the fateful uh, weekend, I think it's going to be an uphill battle. But let's see. The, as I said, it, this, the decision was clearly unfair and, and uh, moves a lot of value uh, to, uh, to, to, to UBS. So, in a sense, probably 81 orders uh, were right in, in, in requesting at least some form of compensation. Maybe not for the full 16 billion, but at least a partial compensation can, can be an outcome of this litigation. Gotcha. Thank you, Francesco. We, we, have a, um, we have published a legal analysis on this, which kind of reinforces all, all the points you made. So uh, anyone wants to read it, it's on the Reorg website. Well, thanks so much for, for the interesting conversation and for your, your, all your points. And uh, thanks so much for all our viewers and listeners. And we'll, uh, for the next banking crisis, we're going to see each other again on these screens. Uh, and uh, I'll see you soon then. Probably, hopefully not too soon. <laughs>